0: Good evening, listeners. It's November 11th, 2018, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Kristen Finch.
1: And I'm Scott Classic. Here at Oregon State University, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. Here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and the personal stories of one of these students each week. So if you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show or if you want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, just check out our blog. Um, it's blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration where you can find all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. So we also have a podcast available on iTunes. If you search for Inspiration Dissemination, you will find it. Look for that orange lightbulb logo.
0: Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight we are joined by Claire Revkant from the Department of Animal and Rangeland Sciences, and she studies predator abundance within and outside greater sage-grouse core areas in Wyoming. Hey, Claire. Hi. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So you want to start off by just telling the audience uh, what greater sage-grouse is? Sure. Uh, Greater
2: sage-grouse, they're a grouse species and it's the largest grouse species in North America. They live in the western United States and then some provinces in Canada as well. Um, Their populations have been in decline for many decades and in the early 2000s they were threatened to be listed under the Endangered Species Act.
1: So you were talking about core areas? What are these core areas?
2: Yeah, so core areas refers to uh, designated protected habitat that was listed under the um, core, Greater Sage-Grouse Core Area Protection Strategy, which is a sage-grouse conservation policy that Wyoming put in place in 2008. So they specifically refer to um, areas that sage-grouse... M- a majority of the, of the sage grouse in Wyoming use for, for nesting. So they were designated by taking lex sites, which are sites that males use for courtship, uh, courtship purposes um, during the breeding season. And they took a eight kilometer buffer around them and they called those core areas. And um, they protect a large expanse of habitat for sage grouse nesting in Wyoming.
0: Yeah, it's pretty impressive how large the area is. If you're listening, uh, you can visit the blog and actually see a map of these areas and the large extent of Wyoming that is covered by them.
1: Yeah, and Wyoming's a big state, and these core areas cover, like, I don't know, half of western Wyoming that is not national park and national forest. It's pretty impressive. It's, yeah, it's pretty big. And I think Wyoming itself is, like, total sagebrush country. It's, like, the heart of, like, where these sage grouses are. Subsist, right?
2: Yeah, so Wyoming is a stronghold for sage-grouse, for the sage-grouse species, really. It, it holds 37% of all birds um, in its range, and Wyoming has the most birds, um, the most lux, and the most contiguous sagebrush habitat um, in its range. So it's impressive.
1: So That's great. Um, the birds are presumably... Being protected, there they were in decline for a while. And yes. what's the case now?
2: So, because of this strategy and many other policies that other states have put in place, the bird in 2010 was decided um, not to be listed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service under the Endangered Species Act. It was a huge win for um, land managers in the states who are trying to keep the bird off of the list and and the reason for that is because when a species is listed under the endangered species act it puts restrictions on land use um, land use um, and that's something that people don't want you know the states don't want it land managers don't want it um, landowners don't want it um, because they're not able to do with what they want to on their land so in, in Wyoming they were specifically worried about it because it is a stronghold for the species so their economy the Wyoming economy relies on oil and gas energy development so if this bird was listed and because this bird is is found throughout the entire state it would it could severely impact their economy and they they didn't want that to happen
0: and so the core area protection plan uh, plan then is really kind of securing the rights of these landowners to the land that they can still use as long as it is with, you know, outside of the core areas. Right, it's,
2: and, it's, and it's not just the landowners, it's also public land as well. That's where a lot of the oil and gas drilling is actually, actually occurs. So if this species was listed, it would protect not only public land, yeah, private land as well, but um, uh, l- luckily it wasn't li- listed for the state, so they're able to carry on. But, but inside of those core areas, um, only five percent surface disturbance is allowed. Um, oil oil rigs are only allowed uh, at every like six hundred and forty uh, square kilometers. Wind and wind development is not allowed at all. So it really helps uh, these birds be able to be in these protected areas since human disturbance, uh, habitat loss, and fragmentation from oil and gas development was one of the, the leading causes of of decline for this bird species. Um, not only in Wyoming, but across its its range, um, habitat loss and fragmentation is a huge problem for these birds. They don't respond well to to human disturbance.
1: So this seems like a very interesting approach towards conservation because, like, often I, I guess like you hear it framed as the landowners, the policymakers are sort of pitted against the environmentalists who want to save a particular species. Sure. And here it seems like the state of Wyoming has agreed okay, well, we'll draw these areas that Mm -hmm. um, we're trying to focus on bringing these bird populations up or at least, you know, prevent them from declining further. And it's been designed to do that so that it's in the public interest. So like if I have an oil well, Mm -hmm. um, it's in my interest to make sure it's not, like infringing on...
2: Right, you want to keep the bird off, off the list.
1: Because otherwise, and the government says, hey, your oil well has got to go, or um, something has to happen, my land gets taken from me, and I can't use it to extract resources. Yeah,
2: or you just can't use public public land to extract the resources that you use to make money. And that's what's really amazing about this, this policy that Wyoming has put in place, because it... It has been deemed effective an effective conservation policy by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which is why, again, in 2015, when they reevaluated um, the sagegrass population and these policies, they deemed that the birds that bird species, the sage uh, did not warrant protection under the ESA. Now, that bird's Sage grouse are, are still in decline in a lot of parts of their range, so they'll continue to be evaluated, but this was a huge win, and the policy is, has served as a framework for other states and other policies um, for the conservation of, of, of the species.
0: Very cool. Yeah, it sounds like a, w- a win all around for the grouse and scientists exactly. and everyone. Yes, public exactly. Interest. Well, I want to get more deeply into your specific project and sure. the questions that you're looking at for your thesis.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my project is focused on avian avian and mammalian predator abundance within and outside sagegrass core areas. It's a mouthful, <laughs> but I'll explain what that means. And then I'm relating their abundance to habitat variables and anthropogenic structures on the landscape, um, because as previous literature has proved, those are really important. Um, so what that means, <laughs> this is what that means. <laughs> um, Predators like they recognize human human influenced areas as areas of food subsidy. So you have raptors that like to uh, perch and nest on um, human structures such as buildings or oil rigs in this case or utility poles. Um, they use them to forage on. They'll use them to nest on and. Um, other predators, mammalian predators specifically, coyote, badger, uh, fox, they use—they like to use roads because it's, it's easy travel. Just like how we like to walk on trails if we go hiking, they like to use roads as well. It's easy to walk on. Um, so it will be interesting to relate that to those structures and see if it's creating uh, predator hotspots um, that may be influencing sage grouse productivity and survival. Um in those areas. So.
1: Yeah, because you got uh, back to that question, like uh it sounded like it, it the sage grouses are declining in certain areas but not in others. Yeah. And we don't know why that is right now, correct?
2: Yeah. So I just came back from a conference and I listened to this really interesting talk about how, uh, depending on the the scale, so a larger scale or a finer scale, um, local populations some might be declining, some might be increasing, but at a larger scale it might just so might just show decline. Um, one of the core areas um, near Jackson is actually showing an increase right now, but we don't really know why. So. Um, as I stated earlier, habitat loss and fragmentation is the leading cause for uh, sage-grouse population decline throughout its range. Um, but predation is really interesting because it's been suggested as a limiting, predator abundance has been uh, suggested as a limiting factor to sage-grouse survival and productivity. And By productivity, I, I mean like how many chicks that they're fledging per year or how many uh, chicks fledge per nest.
0: So if you're able to identify some Areas of higher abundance for a predator that are in a core area or near a core area, how would you present that to a policymaker and what would you expect them to do with that information? So
2: that information will be useful to the policymakers, uh, land managers, because they'll be able to identify these again, hopefully, possibly these predator hotspot areas and what exactly is attracting those predators to that area. To that area. And, and that's important. There was a recent study that just came out last year that said um, ravens that utilize um, oil rig three miles outside of a, a sage-grouse core area um, effectively affects uh, sage-grouse three, three miles within that core area. They don't see boundaries. like We can look at a map and we see boundaries, but out there on the landscape, they don't see those boundaries. So another interesting aspect of this study is that um, in other study that other studies that have occurred is that um, predator abundance uh, depending on where they are might also be reducing functional habitat which is habitat that sagegrass are likely to use for nesting so then we can get a better idea of um, how much habitat is not so much available because this habitat is available but that is functionally being able to be used by these birds, mm-hmm. and then we can, we can create different policies or edit the policies that that are in place mm-hmm. um, to help these bird species, these populations, which several are in decline, and, and maybe uh, try to get th- them going from declining to incline, you know, to yeah. increasing.
0: Definitely,
1: I think it's interesting how like human, uh, the human landscape, is uh, plays into this. Scenario, just because you wouldn't mm. normally think of—at least I wouldn't normally think of uh, roads or oil rigs, something like those um, being uh, like positively impacting how predators can get around. Yeah. Um, so I don't. Know, I guess I, I just thought that was interesting.
2: Yeah, they. Um, a lot of these predators, the ones that I'm specifically looking at, are generalist predators, which essentially means that they're they're going to go out. And what they're looking for, I mean, animals are looking for two things. They're looking to reproduce and they're, and they're looking to eat <laughs> um, at their most primal instinct. So as a generalist, they're looking to get wh- whatever they can. So if they see a landfill that's filled with garbage that they can eat, they're going to take advantage of that. And if they always see this trash near humans, then they're going to they're going to see these human influence areas as, oh, if I go near the humans, I might get food. Um you know, the same with utility poles or oil rigs, you know, birds are using these to nest or, or well, they use them to nest on, but they also use them to perch and forage off of they need these high vantage points so they can see what they're looking at. So, yeah, they're they're attracted to human areas mm-hmm. and, and sage grouse aren't. But as we've seen from past letter, literature, um, they can still be attracted to these areas that maybe they weren't going to be attracted to um, before. Now they're they ended up closer to um, nesting sites.
1: If you're just tuning in, we are talking with Claire Revican. She is a master's student, a second year master's student, is that right? Yep. In the Department of Animal and Rangeland Sciences. And she's talking about, um, we haven't gotten to her research yet, but we're talking about the backstory leading up to her research in Wyoming, where she's looking at sage grouse populations and how predators impact them.
0: Mm -hmm. And uh, I want to know, what's a day in the life of, of Claire in the field? <laughs> what what would, how are you, um, and I know this doesn't all happen in one day, but how are you measuring predator abundance and then mammalian predator occupancy?
2: Yeah, I drive a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the day in the life is a lot of driving. My study area is, is about 46 million acres. It's the entire Wyoming basin. Um that i cover for my research um so it's a lot of driving but what i'm essentially doing to um collect data on abundance i guess i'll start with avian so for avian predators i'm using distance sampling protocol and i'm going out and i'm doing what are called point counts and and this is point counts have been established as a a a great methodology to count birds Um, it's been around for decades and decades and decades and and it works really well so what it entails is I've created these randomly generated transects and point counts within the Wyoming Basin I go out to the point you know I have a GPS location I go out to the point I stand at that point I count all of the raptors and all of the corvids um, which are the avian predators I'm looking at? Corvids um,
1: are like crows, right?
2: Yeah, so corvids. Mm. I'm specifically looking at, in Wyoming are ravens and, and magpies, black billed magpies. Um, ravens, ravens have have been documented to predate um, nest. Predate, pretty effectively. So um, so corvins in, in raptors, I'm counting every single one that I see within those 10 minutes. I'm taking a bearing to the bird. I'm taking the distance to the bird using a rangefinder, And then after those 10 minutes are up, I move on a mile up the road, which I'm using my transects or roads, um, move a mile up to the road where I do another 10 minute point count. And after I do six in a row, I move on to the next transect, which could be anywhere from like 30 minutes away or it could be three hours away, depending on where I am. Um, so that's what I'm doing for the for the avian uh, predators. And that data will be put into s- certain statistical programs or w- a program called uh, program distance. And um, I put that data in and it will s- spit me out a probability of detection and an abundance number. And, you know, there I have it. Um, for the mammalian predators, I took a different route. You can't use point counts for them. They don't fly. They, they don't really <laughs> speak. Yeah. Um, so, originally, I was I was going to do flights, but that that didn't seem to work out for um, what I how I really wanted it to work out. So instead, I set up scent stations and trail cameras. I put on those scent stations, and so a scent station basically is a stick of. I put I have a little vial and I put a couple milliliters of what's called gusto in it. it smells really bad, but the <laughs> the predators love it. And um, I put a camera on it. I I set a camera, uh, you know, a few feet away from it, five, ten feet away from it. Um, and then it records everything that comes to that sense station or hopefully the, the camera is triggered. so I get what's coming to that sense station and, and from there I'm, I can get occupancy. So if I you know if I'm getting badger, if I'm getting coyote, if I'm getting fox, um, I know that they're in the area and they're occupying that area and, and they could effectively be influencing um, the predation risk of sage grouse. And then what I'm also doing for predators um, just to kind of couple the, a couple methods together just in case I was worried the the scent stations wouldn't work out since I only have one season. I'm doing scat and badger burrow transects, which again is really common methodology for uh, finding abundance or relative density of predators. So I walk the road 500 meters and I count all of the Predator scat, again, using distance sampling protocol, so taking the distance Scat is like poop, right? Poop, yeah, so poop. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of wildlife work is poop. (laughs) Um, Everywhere I go. Um, So, yeah, I take the distance to all the the predator poop, so I have to be able to ID the poop and um, uh, take the bearing to it. And so I walk that 500 meters, and I step into the sagebrush, and I walk back um, counting the badger burrows. Um, which, again, you have to be able to ID badger burrows. If, once you see a few, you you've know them for good. <laughs> and, um, yeah, using distance sampling protocol for that so I can get abundance and, rel- and density from that.
1: Sounds like a lot of, like, pretty tedious field work. <laughs> I suppose, yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, you must have to um, collect transects of the raptors and the corvids. Uh, like, you know, it probably varies throughout the day, maybe? Sure, yeah. Or maybe seasonally? I mean, you had a summer for field research. Is that yeah, correct?
2: Yeah, so I, I did avian, I, I collected avian data in 2017 and 2000, 2017 and 2018, and then I just did mammals in 2018 because I, I had to come up with a different methodology, so I wasn't able to put that together in 2017. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of driving, so I listen to a lot of podcasts. But um, yeah, throughout the day, raptors will, raptors, they, they they need thermals to soar. They use thermals to hunt. That just like how they use structures to like air pockets
1: off of. of of air that yeah, rises hot them yeah
2: rising off. air that they can they can use because that reduces their energy costs from needing to flap. They can just ride the thermals. That's what's called riding in thermals. Um, and so generally, the best time to survey for for raptors is they're diurnal just like we are so you wake up they, they get up too. Um, midday is kind of a time of rest again it's kind of like us we have like a afternoon snooze and then and then they're active again in the uh, afternoon into the evening and um mammals you know the mammals i'm recording all, all day long but generally a lot of mammalian predators are active um during like the crepuscular hours, so dawn dawn and dusk and nighttime um but I, i've gotten several pictures during the day too
0: so it sounds like your research is really uh, looking at multiple species. So you're focused on the greater yeah. sage grouse and you're focused on uh, or predators that are affecting greater sage grouse. But sure. the protection of sagebrush, which is this ecosystem, is really more um, more intricate than that. And I'm uh, wondering, like, why? Why should we uh, be so interested in sagebrush and that ecosystem?
2: Yeah, the sagebrush ecosystem is vast, and there are so many species—over two hundred species—that rely on the sagebrush ecosystem for all or some part of its life. And the sage grouse is no different. to them. I mean, they're called sage grouse, right? right? Yeah. Um, they rely on sagebrush for all parts of their life cycle. Without it, they they would perish. And then. What's really interesting about sage-grouse is they've been designated as a umbrella species. And for anybody who who doesn't know what that means, is you have umbrella species are designated because um, they indirectly, their conservation decisions that are based on the animal indirectly um, protects other organisms that live in the community of that habitat as well. So for the sage-grouse, if you take... You know, if the top of the pinnacle, you have the sage grouse, then you have other species below it, um, such as, you know, sagebrush obligate songbirds. So, you know, sage thrasher brewer, brewer sparrow, sagebrush sparrow, uh, pronghorn use the sagebrush. So many, so many animals. Um, the conservation policies that are aimed at protecting the sage grouse. The thought is that this concept the thought with this concept is that it's also protecting hundreds of other species as well. So that's another really interesting thing that this project allows me to do. I'm going out there and I'm doing point counts for raptors and corvids anyways, but I'm also able to collect data on sagebrush obligate songbirds, which those populations, those three that I mentioned, again, the sage or the brewer sparrow, and the sagebrush sparrow, their populations are also in decline and they're threatened to be listed as well. You know, within our lifetime for sure.
0: So it's like a winning policy, really, not just for the sage grouse, but for all of the all of the animals and all of the plants that are using this habitat that is restricted to only certain parts of North America.
2: Yes, yeah. So it's a concept. Um, it's not like a pr- it's, you know nothing in science is proven, but mm-hmm. um, it's not a theory that's widely accepted. It's a concept that we think like yeah, like that makes sense if you protect the species that needs all of this, you know, that inhabits most of the sagebrush, like it must be protecting the other species as well, right? Mm -hmm. Well that might not be necessarily true, but my project will hopefully answer some of those questions to see if the umbrella species concept is also effectively protecting these sagebrush obligate songbirds. And again, I'm just doing abundancies for that as well, Like, seeing, you know, are they moving, are they in these sagegrass core areas or are they outside of those areas where they're threatened by human human influences and human activity?
1: And I suppose cool. this has uh, ramifications for other types of ecosystems as well. That might sure. just have you know all different types of yes totally different ecosystem, but the same concept could apply.
2: Yes, for sure. So. Yeah.
0: Well, I like that um, your this kind of leads into the next part. So. You've worked with a lot of bird species in your time, like in yeah. your in your career and even before that. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you became interested in working with birds?
2: Yeah, I love birds so much, <laughs> <laughs> I love birds so much. Um, I've there was never a point in my life when I didn't know I was going to be a bird biologist. Like I wanted to be an ornithologist since I can remember. Like I I honestly don't remember how it came about. Um, we always had this I think it was a house finch I, I didn't I, there, I, there are no birders in my family I'm the only one who's truly that interested but I loved watching this house finch um, nest in the Christmas reef from my front door and I would watch you know I'd watch the chicks grow up and then fledge and and I would look forward to that every year and my mom also got us my mom you know, she's an accountant, but she always loved the outdoors. So she would get us involved with the outdoors. So she would take us to the station called, it's called Braddock Bay Raptor Research. They do, they band a lot of birds, um, both passerine and raptors. And she would take us to the raptor banding station. And we, we went so many times they, they actually allowed us to, uh, help band the, the, you know, the red tail hawks and, and the kestrel or, you know, whatever came into the trap. And then we got to release them because they, they, we just went so often. I thought that was the coolest thing. And so I just knew that I, I applied to one school when I was an undergrad, a SUNY ESF College of Environmental Science and Forestry, which is one of the top environmental schools in this in this country. And I said, if I don't get in, like, that's too bad. But, like, this is what I'm meant to do. So luckily I got in. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, follow, yeah. follow your dreams. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and so uh, when you're an undergrad and you're, you're kind of starting to, like, Figure out what it's like to be a researcher, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any projects that really uh, threw you in the deep end? You were like, okay, now I'm doing this wildlife bird stuff, like even more so than just on family trips.
2: Oh, yes, yeah. so, so I got my I got my first internship when I was an undergrad. I got my first internship at Parker River National Wildlife Refuge. And I was helping the band in mist net. And mist nets are just like huge nets to capture passerines. Um Uh, specifically we were looking to misnut and band salt marsh sparrows which is an an obligate of the salt marsh ecosystem so (laughs) I guess I'm working with obligates here Um, and uh, we banded a lot of other birds too and then from there I, I, I worked at Monomoy National Wildlife Refuge for three seasons. I was there for a full year at one point and I learned so much there. I was monitoring seabird productivity, specifically oyster catchers and terns and also plovers. And we did like a red knot migration study and I uh, got to learn about that. And I, I just loved it. I soaked it all up. And then after that, I went to Yellowstone. I worked for the bo- bird program there and I did uh, raptor productivity monitoring. So, again, just going out finding nest uh, or looking at nest and, and then um, seeing if their chicks are, you know, see if their nest failed, see if their chicks fledged. Um, that's productivity monitoring in, in a nutshell. And then I worked for the California Condor Recovery Program and um, did tr- a lot of trapping, and did some workups and um, learned a lot about condors. And, and now I'm here. So at great. some point
1: great. you had a, um, an idea to pursue veterinary school. Yeah but um yeah <laughs> can you tell us about that decision yeah.
2: well I, I always loved animals and i thought well i'll just be a vet but if you love animals generally generally those people end up being vets right well i, I found out that i don't actually wanna um i, d- I Do didn't want surgery see, i didn't want to see <laughs> surgery like i wanted to see the animal in its natural habitat i didn't want to see it sick or you know dying and um I, you know, I found research and wildlife work instead, and I'm okay with that. And, you know, good, good for vets. It's just not for me, but I've always loved
0: animals. Mm -hmm. So what's gonna, what's, what's next after you complete this master's? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) That's the dreaded question that we ask everyone and we prepare no one for. (laughs) No ideas? Hopefully
2: success.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course.
2: Uh, I, I take every day as its own and just try to get through every day. It's um, being a graduate student is no joke. And um, it's a lot of hard work. I I hope that afterwards I can be a biologist somewhere. I I thought it would be cool recently. I was thinking like, oh, to be an endangered species biologist would be, you know, that would be something I could, I could be, I mean, I'm passionate about any biologist job really, but I, you know, that would be something that I would, I would like to pursue. Um, I want to, I just want to, I want to be involved with policies and with, you know, monitoring. I want to be involved with, with work that helps protect um, our our wildlife because without people being stewards for these animals, there's a chance that they might perish and I don't want to see that happen. And I know that a lot of other people don't want to see that happen either. So if I can do something to affect change, that'd be great.
0: Definitely. And it's noble work because you might not know the effects that your research have right. on the system now, but you're still contributing. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Very good.
1: Definitely sounds like a job where, you know, passion is uh, definitely an element you need for getting up and, you, you know, you mind birds or whatever you end up doing. <laughs> you know, <laughs>
2: yeah. birds, are, birds can be so you've got to get up early for a lot of birds. Like sometimes you're out in the middle of the night. Sometimes you're up at the crack of dawn. Sometimes you're out really late at night and you've got to be passionate about it. And, um, I am, so yeah, I like the work I do.
1: So, uh, what else do you like to do aside from, uh, I mean, grad school makes your life pretty much grad school
0: scheduled, (laughs) um,
1: in those moments where you're not, um, doing bird transects or. Uh, entering poop. data, <laughs> yeah. poop.
0: looking yeah. at uh, trail camera yeah. data.
2: It's actually really interesting to look at the data. But I, on my off time when I can find it, I I love backpacking and I love spending time with my dog. And we go to the national forest and we backpack. I'm, I'm I've been an avid avid skier for the past 24 years of my life, uh, 22 years of my life. Um, yeah, those are the things I really like to be outside. I think a lot of biologists do like to be outside. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Are you like uh you have kind of the muscle memory for point counts that where you're doing some other activity you're like kind of you like switch into point count mode. Yeah, you can't
2: you can't ever hear a bird and not try to ID it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Can't turn it off. You can't turn it off. Yeah. yeah. But I mean that keeps you sharp. Yeah. You got to stay sharp. Very good. Yeah. All right. Well, we're getting around to the end of our show now, and we still have two uh, traditions that we keep to in inspiration dissemination. And the first is to ask you for some advice and uh, who you're giving advice to. Sure. So,
2: you know, I have a piece of advice that I'm sure a lot of other people give other people, Um, but it's something that I have constantly constantly have had to tell myself I I come from a family that yeah some some of them like the outdoors but most of them are, are business workers you know they're they're out to work a job you know make as much money as as, as they can and in wildlife you, you're not gonna do that like, you can't go into wildlife and expect to make you know hundreds and thousands of dollars like it's and that's okay because we believe wildlife biologists, people who work for the for the envi- environment, like we believe in that. So I would say the best piece of advice I can can give to people who want to pursue environmental jobs is to never give up. Don't don't think that you're not going to make it because if you try and you put in the hard work, you're going to get there because there are going to be so many people along the ways that are going to say you're never going to get a job in your field. You know you th- you're never gonna get a job but you will if you if you work hard and you believe in the work that you do other people will see that employers were will see that and it will work out for you
0: very good advice
1: that sounds great so our other tradition is we ask all of our guests to pick a song to play out on and yeah. which song have you chosen for us
2: <laughs> I picked the song I like birds by the eels <laughs> <laughs> pretty sounds obvious one. yeah
1: <laughs>
0: It's a good song. Very good. Well, uh, this is Inspiration Dissemination, and we're on every Sunday at 7 p.m. with a different graduate student each week. Next week, we'll be back with Katarina Linde from Botany and Plant Pathology. But thank you so much, Claire, for coming on to talk ah, to us you. and tell us your story. Yeah, thank you. All right. And so this is I Like Birds by the Eels. You heard it on KBVR Corvallis. This is Inspiration Dissemination. Stay tuned for more bird songs until 8 p.m. I can't look at the rocket launch, the trophy
1: wives of the astronauts, and I won't listen to their words.